Hello, and welcome to Unseen Being, our monthly show where we talk to artists, scientists, and each other about what the hell is happening inside our brains and bodies when we experience the world around us. We explore some of the intangible and overlooked experiences that contribute to the way we feel. What happens at the center of our experiences when we listen to music, walk in nature, sit on our phones, make morning coffees, zone out and get into the flow, or simply dance around the room. All of these tiny micro experiences contribute to the way we feel, act and behave. So in this podcast, we take you on a mini journey of self-discovery, exploration and feed your curiosity about some of the most overlooked yet instrumental elements that contribute to your well-being. Consider this an audio handbook curated by artists, scientists, philosophers, and technologists. A critical guide to understanding the well-being of experience in the current age. We bring you the latest in scientific discoveries, but cut the academic jargon and help enhance your understanding of the way everyday experiences impact you, and potentially an understanding of some of the tiny changes you can make to improve the way. We are Robin and Catherine, and together we're the founders of Kindest Students, creative science studio that explores the aesthetics of human experience. We look at the neuroscience of art's impact on well-being and human connection and believe the connection to self, others and the environment is fundamental to human experience. we should do an episode on flavour because flavour is actually perceived in the brain, not the nose, which is where you smell, or the mouth where you taste, but it's a perception that's wrapped up with more things than you can really imagine. It's wrapped up with sense of self, sense of place, memories, safety, loads of things that we take for, for granted really. And perhaps one of the sort of most notable side effects of, of the pandemic and of COVID itself has been this loss of smell and taste and nose mere. And so flavour really is something that is a perception that's formed from expectations, from memories, but it's formed in the brain. Hmm. And it's quite a complex thing, isn't it? So um, maybe before we get into all of that, let's just do a recap about the biology of flavour. And I'd yes. love to hear you speak about this. <laughs> Good point. OK, right. So as we mentioned, taste is detected by different receptors on the tongue. It's, it's, it's in the mouth. And your tongue can detect sweet, salty, sour, bitter and umami. Now, actually, those sensors on the tongue are, are just the start of the story. One of the most surprising papers I've read on this showed that they found taste receptors all over the body. Uh, they're in the stomach, they're in the pancreas, where they think they aid digestion. They're found uh, in the airways, where they think they have an impact on respiration. They've even been found on sperm. Mmm, <laughs> mm, flavorful sperm. Hungry sperm. <laughs> Okay, so perhaps embodied taste, we'll, we'll tackle another day because that seems like a really interesting topic to explore. But for now, we'll focus on flavor. And so flavor is simply a perception or an impression of food, which is mostly determined by the chemical senses of the gustatory and olfactory systems. These are the senses which detect chemical irritants in the mouth and throat, as well as temperature and texture. So these are important to the overall gestalt, or the cumulative influence, 
that influence taste and perception, otherwise known as flavor. Exactly. And it's this perception in the brain that's led to what's now known as cross-modal research. So research into how the different senses interact to affect your sense of flavor. And that's something that can be manipulated and is manipulated now for all sorts of reasons, just, you know, beyond just culinary experiences. We're now looking into how flavor can affect well-being, how flavor can affect, you know, experiential immersive art. So it's a whole area that, you know, has just sprung up and really exciting to explore. Exactly. And so I think this is probably a great time to introduce our first guest, who explains that for him, flavor is an art, it's a science, and of course, a psychology. Professor Charles Spence is the head of the Crossmodal Research Laboratory at Oxford University, and he's interested in how people perceive the world around them, in particular, how our brains manage to process the information from each of our external senses, like smell, taste, sight, hearing, and touch, to form the extraordinarily rich multisensory experience that fill our daily lives. His research focuses on how a better understanding of the human mind will lead to the better design of the future of multisensory foods, products, interfaces, and environments. Why we're really drawn to Charles's work is his scientific approach to better understanding and enhancing our everyday lives and experiences that we can all relate to. So we'll leave it to Charles to explain a little bit more. And then psychophysics is kind of a branch of psychology where you try and systematically um, try to approach or the scientific approach to our perception of nice food and drink, study it scientifically both in the lab and then out in the real world, which sort of you know, brought me into uh, uh, contacts and collaboration, very fruitful collaboration over the years with chefs like Heston Blumenthal from the Fat Duck and uh, Joseph Youssef from Kitchen Cafeteria in North London. And as we try and you know, do experiments that both, both capture the way the senses affect us uh, when we eat and drink, and also, you know, sort of illustrate sort of this almost edutainment in a way that people can go and have a uh, an experiential multisensory dinner, and come away learning a bit more about how their senses work to construct flavors that we we think we experience in our mouths, but I'm convinced we really experience in our minds first, and that's where kind of the psychology comes in. With one scientist's coat, white coat on, one wants to distinguish between taste and flavor, uh, and use sort of taste to refer just to. Uh, what your tongue picks up from the taste buds, uh, tongue and elsewhere in the oral cavity. So that's things like sweet and sour and bitter, salty and umami, and use flavour to, to describe almost a multi-sensory experience which comes from a combination of taste, those five basic tastes, plus retronasal smell whenever we chew and swallow, pulses of volatile rich head go out of the back of the nose. And it's this kind of combination, and that gives you the fruity, the floral, the herbal, the meaty, the creamy, all the interesting stuff in food is coming from our nose. And when you put that together with a taste and with the trigeminal bits you get from, you know, the pungency of ginger and black pepper, the, the pain of, of chili, that is really what sort of flavour perception is uh, all about, this integration of the senses that happens effortlessly, automatically, and, you know, that is really going on. Those senses kind of come together for the first time in the brain, not in the mouth. Then our brain does this wonderful job of convincing us all that, in fact, we're tasting in our mouth and the flavours coming from that food or drink that we can feel moving around uh, in our cavity. So Charles is really keen to make us aware that, that taste comes from your mouth, but flavour happens later in your brain. And when we were talking to him, the question that instantly came to me is why? And so Charles started to explain to me that like much of our neural sort of wetware, our brain, one of its key concerns is what is about to happen to you. And that's how it keeps you safe. 
And so in the same way, flavor is heavily underpinned by our brain's expectations of what it's about to eat. And Charles explains some more. There are flavor experiences coming from these three senses as we eat and drink, but there's also flavor expectations. And we never really put anything in our mouth without our brain having predicted already, what is it, do I like it, is it energy dense? And those expectations are actually driven by what we see, by the color, by the context, by the naming, the description of a dish. And then when we kind of come to taste something, and have that flavor experience it's really kind of constrained by and driven by the expectations we had beforehand and i i sort of believe that really you know most of the time we live in the world of our flavor expectations set by our eye and by our sense of smell as we sniff the food maybe by sound of the, of the ding of the microwave or the sizzle of the steak on the hot plate and that really anchors most of the experiences we have so as Charles briefly mentioned, uh, his research and that of others really shows that color is, is really the single most important intrinsic cue when it comes to setting people's expectations of flavor in food and drink. And research shows actually that adding more food coloring to make it more saturated to something leads people to taste it as more intense. And adding different coloring to the normal color that something would be actually shifts the detection of things like sourness, sweetness, and bitterness. And even more recently, actually, studies show that adding food coloring can enhance perceived sweetness by as much as 10%, which actually might help curb the current sugar problem. You know, giving people the perception that something sweeter maybe doesn't mean that we need to actually have as much sugar. Now, it's always good to put the watch outs of these studies that in this one particular, there were no long-term results. So I think that we still probably have to do some longitudinal studies, they're called, to look at the long-term efficacy of these types of things. But it is really interesting how we can think of how much our perception plays a role in kind of our health and well-being in those aspects and, and it's really about our perceived previous expectations really. I love that and it makes me think of you know when I was a kid and, and my mom would, would look at horror with things that had bright colors in but of course now with an awareness and these things being made from different sources actually it can be a really good thing. Mm. It's really interesting to see how things can come from other aspects and shift our perception which I think we're going to hear about later in the episode as well, right? Yeah, absolutely. So hold that thought. Um, but what I wanted to say was that Charles touched on something that we do talk about a lot in the kind of studios and we really love, and that's the concept of prediction coding. Mm. You know, we talked about expectations and the brain always trying to keep you safe. And and prediction coding is, is a theory uh, in neuroscience that that's one of the primary functions of the brain, to constantly be creating a model of the world around it, of reality, and then updating that model so that you can expect what's going to happen next. When, of course, things go not as planned, you get that whole sick feeling of cognitive dissonance and your brain freaks out slightly because it thinks it can't keep you safe. Yes, we really love a little bit of predictive coding chat in the studio, but it's really important to note why we have the prediction in our brain, really. Our predictive models are really formed from expectations, which works as a safety mechanism to help us better prepare for what's about to happen. You know, we're using our past experiences to prepare us for the future to keep us safe from danger. And as Charles explains, it's this same safety and survival mechanism that underpins why flavor is primarily based in our expectations or predictions about what something will taste like. One might think, what's the alternative? Well, the alternative, if we didn't try to predict flavors and set our flavor expectations, would be that we'd have to stick everything in our mouth to see what it tasted like. Uh, we might poison ourselves. It'd be sort of you know time-consuming business as we sort of uh, tried everything out. And hence, what uh, these expectations give us and these predictions is the ability to uh, not have to put everything in our mouth to know what it's likely going to taste like. To learn, 
you know, perhaps that fruits go from green and sour and unripe and unworth climbing the tree to try and get through to redder and riper and sweeter and more energy dense. And if you learn that sort of statistic of the world, then you're a better place to um, figure out what to eat. And hence, you know, is, is hugely advantageous and very interesting. Some of the research, I'm sort of very interested in the way that how sometimes, you know, what we see, the colours of food or the texture can set expectations. We think red, pinkish red is definitely sweet and, and green is sour and so on. But we also uh, learn to associate certain smells with sweetness. Vanilla smells sweet to us, caramel, strawberry, even roses. And in most of those cases, those smells, you know, become, they almost become sweet themselves through this associative learning. And I love what Charles has said about here, actually, about the knowing when fruit is ripe and the colors of red to green, because actually that's coded into our evolutionary history and shapes our preferences towards things and our preferences towards certain colors. So there's actually two neural systems that govern color, the red-green and the blue-yellow. And these color systems and their resulting preferences are, are wired into our human visual system, which has been adapted from these evolutionary important behavioral tasks. So, for example, back in the day, females had more pronounced red-green in their visual field due to their need to find ripe red fruits and berries against the green leaves in which they were placed. And so this genetic tuning may still result in preferences today across food and other aesthetic preferences that are purely just that and no longer needed for survival needs. But there's cross-cultural differences that exist in this as well, which is really interesting. Things aren't really universal when it comes to color. We're so conditioned from the cultures in which we come from, and we're influenced by the objects of those certain colors. So, for example, we are naturally drawn in the West probably to blue because blue represents blue skies and clear water, and that presents a positive emotion towards, let's call them, objects like these. But... For example, in, in places like Africa, they will have more of a preference to colors like red and brown because here we might see red and brown as kind of gross, you know, feces, things like that. They really see it as fertile soil and healthy soil. So in cross-cultural studies, uh, they showed that these color preferences really change over time based on the culture in which you come from. And it's actually interesting to think about if we were to place ourselves in another culture, how would those influence kind of how we see flavor and taste and the color of certain objects. I love this. When I found out about it, it was new to me and it makes so much sense because actually, you know, cooking and culture is a very multi-sensory experience. Um, and, you know, we grow these preferences and we wonder whether they're universal, whether it's to do with memories. And, you know, the truth is it's a combination of those things. You know, there's even research to show that that our flavor preferences are based on sort of social desires and social values. There was an American study which showed that people who wanted to be associated with a particular identity evaluated the food flavors associated with that identity as tastier. So people who wanted to be performance athletes or look like they were genuinely thought that sports drinks tasted better. You know, so we can see this across all of cultures. And I suppose one time we really, or I really think about that multi-sensory experience around flavour is, of course, Christmas and the festive period. Oh, don't we ever. That <laughs> smell of mulled wine, sweet hot cider, cinnamon, or maybe it's just that Bailey's glugging into your coffee a little bit earlier than it's supposed to. And you don't really tell anyone about that when you start doing that on the 1st of December, do you? Everyone's allowed that in December. This morning, in a wonderful townhouse, Robin and I were handed a beautiful drink 
you know, by a tree that was covered in, in or- dried oranges and the scent was amazing. It was amazing. You know, the first and the colours as well, everything was yellow and orange. And the first thing I got excited about was thinking that potentially it was an alcoholic drink. And because it was December at 9am, it was probably okay. It wasn't. It was an incredible mocktail and f- flavours of Lapsang Souchon and Clementine. But, you know, it is it is part of the festive period. For me, coming from a sort of Irish Catholic family, it's all about church incense. Um, is something that takes me straight back into the festive period because it's, you know, being lapsed Catholic, it's the only time my family actually go to church. Uh, and cinnamon as well, and, you know, all those flavours. Traditionally, actually, most of those spices were used to preserve food across the winter. And what's interesting now is spices, as well as the incredible scent and flavour of them, have incredible medicinal properties. Rosemary is good for your memory. You know, things like garlic is good for your uh, immune system. In fact, most of the spices like nutmeg, cinnamon, have incredible neurological sort of protective properties that have been well proven in, in science. In fact, also, it was so expensive at one point, so sought after in the sort of Victorian era and before they really do think that this quest to find new exotic spices really drove a lot of the exploration at the time. And even as far back as ancient Egypt, you find that things like cinnamon were more expensive or valued more than gold itself. Mm, interesting. And cinnamon and those flavors and spices as well also are super anti-inflammatory. So they've got great benefits for your immune system as well and balancing your blood sugar. But perhaps what's less good for you is the smell of oil and potato, which is what my personal festive scent memories come back to. So I come from a Jewish background, and so growing up, I celebrated the holiday of Hanukkah, the festival of lights. And on Hanukkah, we make latkes, which are basically fried potato pancakes. And my mother, when she made these, used to, sorry, mom, um, she used to... (laughs) put a shower cap on her hair when she was making these because you had to fry them in so much oil and we'd make huge batches for the Hanukkah parties Um, and she didn't want the oil to kind of get into her hair you know this dense curly Jewish hair that we have and didn't want it to kind of fill it so I used to remember coming home and just the house was flooded with that Honestly, it's an, it's an amazing smell. And what's really most important here for any Lutka eaters is there's two types of people in this world. People who eat Lutkas with applesauce and people who eat Lutkas with sour cream. I, my chance, are I'm in the latter category. I eat the most sour cream. I would definitely be in the, in, in the former, in the <laughs> applesauce. <laughs> Please do leave some comments for us or just drop us an email to let us know which camp you fall in. Maybe we'll do some sort of like Instagram poll or something like that. But yeah, obviously, um, there are so many different types of celebrating this festive season. And a lot of them are linked back to smell. And they became... They become so memorable for us due to this. And I think that we often forget how memorable smell is. And so smell, which is processed in the olfactory bulb, is the fastest of all of our senses, actually. And that's because it's the only one that goes directly to the limbic system, the emotional center of our brain, which includes the amygdala and the hippocampus, which is why it activates such a deep emotional response. And most of our senses actually pass through the thalamus, which is the sensory relay station in the brain, before they get sent over for processing in the limbic system elsewhere. But smell goes directly to that limbic system, which is why that emotional memory is so well imprinted on us. 
it's really interesting because actually talking to Charles about this, he shows that a lot of chefs, you know, they'll do it in their restaurants just through instinct. But the work he's doing is helping chefs actually use this sort of neuroscience to underpin their recipes, to use the sort of the smells, the flavours, but also sounds to create a sense of nostalgia. Now, he'll later explain about how he uses the sound of the sea when people are eating fish to have an enhanced experience. In fact, actually, this whole idea of sonic seasoning, as he calls it, is rather wonderful. You know, a well-known way of, of using sound to change the actual flavour perception of food in our brains. Perhaps I'll let him explain a bit more. A lot of our recent research, which has been on sort of sonic seasoning, which has been, you know, um, using music to change the taste of food with sort of our higher pitched notes being associated with sweetness and, and very low pitched notes associated with bitter tastes. And you want to say, well, you know, why on earth would it make sense you know, if you play high-pitched music for food to taste sweeter? And my guess is that part of the answer is around the fact that you know, at birth we're all born sticking our tongues out and up. If you put a, a sweet taste onto a newborn's tongue, we're all born making the same stereotypical orofacial gestures. Humans, chimpanzees, rats, uh, with a bitter taste on the tongue. The tongue goes out and down as we try and eject the ugh. And if you just think about the sorts of vocalisations you make with your tongue out and down versus out and up, I'm convinced they're different in quality and perhaps a little higher in pitch with the tongue upwards. That's a statistic of the world. It's completely useless for our brain to internalise it, but it doesn't know which is which. Useless from useful. And we sort of, in our research, sort of tap into these correlations and associations and then think about how to play them back in the design of multisensory experiences that are kind of surprising, that are sometimes sound almost synthetic, but I think are not, and which are hopefully fun and uh, leave people you know, learning a little bit more and also sort of amazed and, and in wonder, potentially, uh, how their senses do work and, and some of the surprising connections between them. I find it so fascinating that this whole link between sound, emotion and flavour could be due to the facial expressions we make. You know, sense hacking is a wonderful offshoot of all this work on cross-modal research in our brain. And we love this idea of play. It's very inherent to our studio and the way you can play with taste and sound. You know, there's a wonderful experiment with coffee where if you're drinking coffee, you can make it taste sweeter by playing string instruments or sort of orchestral pieces. You can make food taste sweeter, as Robin mentioned earlier, eaten off a red plate. Even the idea of creaminess in, in the mouth is about the way that the different fats dissolve when we have these you know, taste receptors in our mouth which actually produce dopamine, a reward chemical in our brain, which is why ice cream can sometimes be so Moorish. In fact, we once created a, a virtual reality world to try and enhance the taste of creamy cheese, of a brie, in fact, using everything from haptic gloves that stroked your hands to a world saturated in colour and sound to enhance that sensation of creaminess, which sort of culminated in, in a live experiment on, on Sky News in which I famously tried to, to force Eamon Holmes to eat cheese live on TV, and he actually refused. Um, but it is an area which we, we're loving to explore more and more and which is on the rise in, in UCL, which we're often working with. There's a huge department now all dedicated to this type of research. Exactly. Yeah. One of our studio friends, Marion Orbst, who's the head of the Human Computer Interface Lab at UCL, was actually one of the first scientists to discover a link between flavor, well, technically taste, really, and behavior. Her research showed that when we have just tasted something sour, it actually increases our tolerance to risk, which makes us, which makes us more able to, to take risks in our lives. So maybe eat that sour food. I mean, I don't really like sour gummies. What else is sour? I do like a sour drink. Cranberries? That's festive. I was thinking more of the sour drink is kind of the festive thing. Okay. Yes. 
take something sour. A whiskey eat, sour. Drink lots of whiskey sours and then see what your propensity to risk is after Probably that. Probably more, more than just the favour that's going to make <laughs> you better able to take a risk. Anyways, back to the study, really. Um, in Marianne's study, they haven't really worked out why, but they believe it's something to do with the brain perceiving sour as a potential poison and a threat. And so it increases our ability to take action, which is it's pretty cool. Absolutely. Uh, it was why for a long time I, I thought it was hysterical to take sour fantastics, the gummy sweets, to um, to meetings to make everyone a bit bolder so they'd be more likely to employ us. Mm. <laughs> yes, exactly. And I love this idea of pushing boundaries. And another one of our collaborators and friends, Marshmallow Laser Feast, are doing a really exciting project called Sweet Dreams, which is so playful and imaginative. And it's mixing all the modalities, both physical and digital. You know, it's going to be, when it's finished, a big physical journey that you take with a VR headset and through different sensations around you, from smell to touch to things you put in your mouth, you go on an imaginary sort of flavoured journey to do all sorts of amazing things, like sort of, you know, tasting a unicorn's horn. Uh, but it's wonderful to to be creative with this. And actually, that was one of the stories that Charles had that I enjoyed the most. And we used to have lots of fun, you know, uh, recreating futurist dinner parties and, you know, things from there actually you know, kind of led out subsequently into dish, into dishes and experiments and papers. A sort of famous, memorable example has to be when uh, Chef Charles Michel, this kind of Franco-Colombian uh, young chef, came and wanted to you know, recreate this idea of syntactalismo, as the futurists called it in Italy in the 1930s, the idea of these almost synesthetic connections between what we're feeling uh, and what we're eating. And they had, you know, the, 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 um, the kind of the pyjama party, the tactile dinner party, where people were invited to come along to eat without cutlery, burrowing their faces into the plates while rubbering their neighbours' gym jams, which were made of, you know, uh, uh, squares of different material of felt and sandpaper and and silk just to see what affinities they could find uh, and we sort of recreated that with Charles going to the market buying some uh, hairs getting them from the butcher there pelts uh, and then wrapping those pelts around the spoons and serving the animal and, and as you feel it's fur you can smell the animal on the cutlery hugely strong experience and uh, you think differently about food as a result it is very visceral isn't it a sort of futurist taste pajama party really um, but as, as fun as it all is, there is also a well-being aspect to flavour. Uh, we often talk in our podcast about the importance of, of social interactions to well-being. And of course, that's a very natural reason why just gathering around a table for food does enhance your well-being. But beyond all of this, um, there are more creative ways that we can use flavour to enhance well-being, as Charles explains. You know, he says he, he likes people eating seafood to the sound of the sea, but it's more than just a way to evoke nostalgia. It's a way that he's been exploring the power of nature itself, embedded in a dining experience to evoke a nature connection, and that experience in itself boosting your well-being. The idea of sort of multi-sensory well-being is a, a, a key theme in, in the Sentaking book and a lot about you know, the link to uh, nature and hence the nature effect. For me as a multi-sensory scientist, you know, so much of the literature on the nature effect is about, is about visual nature. It's about seeing the blues of water and the sea, about seeing the greens and what sort of you know, visual impressions or, or, or experiences of nature might be most beneficial for our health and our well-being. But I'm very interested in the sound of nature, but also for me, you know, kind of the smell of nature. So nature is you know, a multi-sensory thing. There's no reason just to concentrate on how it's evoked or presented by one sense, but multi-sensory, and that raises lots of quest interesting questions for me then, both about you know, can we think about the effects of ambient scent, which I'm very interested in 
aromatherapy is that kind of a nature effect uh, through your nose and so how can you, you know, construct these experiences that you know, uh, do connect better to the nature of the environment that we may have involved from but do so through the senses in a congruent manner that incorporate both the real and the, and the digital. To me working with the chefs it's been interesting to see how many of them have started to go beyond the plate and to start to deliver multi-sensory experiences to the diners and that could be the sound of a sea dish we I sort of worked with Heston Blumenthal on, on the impact of seaside sounds and seafood taste, or it could be Joseph Yousef and uh, you know, serving out a mushroom dish, and he brings out the smell of the forest floor, kind of the jasmine. He has the sights and sounds of the forest, and of all the environments that chefs could have chosen to create to complement the dishes that they serve, it's nearly all of them are doing nature effect. I'm sort of wondering, well, it's congruent with the food they serve, yes, but have they implicitly, intuitively somehow picked up on the benefits of the nature effect? And if you feel better because of it, then you probably have a better food experience. I love that Charles has really brought in the whole multisensory nature of just our everyday experiences from being in nature to eating food and how much we can play with those elements, including the sense of smell and the power of our nose, which we'll talk even more about, believe it or not, as the episode continues. And really, Charles has taken this concept of biophilia even a step further into these dining experiences. And biophilia really is our connection to the natural world, connection to nature. It's what makes us feel relaxed when we see green trees and green spaces and why we like to be surrounded by plants. But this notion of how we can use biophilia and nature and dining and food to increase well-being also creatively applies to flavor in our eating experiences as well. And our second guest really gets into the molecular nature of flavor. In an equally exciting quest for flavor that really isn't just about the deliciousness, but is also about sustainability and positive well-being. Absolutely. And this is our second guest, Dr. Johnny Drain. Now, Johnny is a materials scientist and food experimenter who works at the cutting edge of food, fermentation, design and sustainability, helping to rethink how we will feed the world of the future in a more delicious, but also regenerative, equitable and ecologically friendly way. I just want to say that what I really love about Johnny and his work is that he knows the molecular level of the food and so he can take it beyond just being something functional and really play creatively with it and like us of course he brings together those two sides the art and the science and that really is the basis of what he calls his mission to unlock deliciousness unlocking deliciousness by understanding the science chemistry the physics the biology that underpins our food is at the core of a lot of what i do commensurate with that is also understanding how emotion and history and food cultures also help build this this broader picture of deliciousness now for me fermentation is one of the tools that i use to do this for anybody that isn't familiar with fermentation what is it well normally we could say we cook with heat you know when we grill some toast or we fry a mushroom fermentation could be crudely but not inaccurately termed cooking with microbes so microbes are microorganisms molds bacteria yeasts and people often say well you know is fermentation this trendy new thing no not at all most of the world's favorite foods are fermented bread cheese miso paste, soy sauce, vinegar, even things like coffee and chocolate, which people might not think are fermented, they are fermented foods. Butter, wine, spirits, etc., all fermented. So fermentation is very old. And the great thing about fermentation by using these microbes, these microbial collaborators, is that they give us access to flavor profiles 
that you might not otherwise be able to get access to. So obviously, as a cook, as a chef, as a home cook, you can buy lots of different ingredients and you can mix them up and create wonderful flavor profiles. But using fermentation, you can actually create additional flavors that, that you just can't buy or source from, from the plant kingdom or the animal kingdom. So fermentation gives us access to all these different levels and layers of deliciousness that we might not otherwise be able to get to. It's really important to look at food in terms of sustainability. In fact, we know Johnny from Mr. Lion Studio, another incredible creative, looking at how we can retain flavour and at the same time promote sustainability. And he explained to us this part of his work, because, of course, it might be that we can have all these flavours now, but in the future, as we lose things like biodiversity, we're going to genuinely lose flavours. Normally, in my line of work, the reason why I'm trying to unlock that deliciousness to, to pursue flavour is simply for enjoyment when I work with these fancy Michelin-starred restaurants, etc. But there are other really good reasons for us to explore flavour and deliciousness. For example, if we create dishes, create foods that are more satiating, that when you eat them, you feel more satisfied, you feel full, you feel happy, then, you know, then that can be built into part of healthier diets. It can stop people maybe snacking on things that aren't quite so good for them. And we can use deliciousness and flavor as part of broader, healthier diets. Additionally, when we think about how we can reframe and rethink flavor for a, a more positive, sustainable future, if you sit, and I've seen this, I've done this many, many times, so I know this works. If you sit a bowl or a plate of something really delicious in front of someone they will sniff it they'll look at it they'll put it in their mouth and then they'll go mm, how did you make this and suddenly instead of if if our ambition is to try to create a world where people are consuming um, sustainable foods instead of us preaching down talking down to people saying hey you don't eat this it's really bad for you it's really bad for the planet if we sit this bowl of delicious stuff this ambrosia in front of someone and then suddenly they're asking hey how did you make this why does it taste like why does it taste like chicken but it's got no you said it's got no meat in it suddenly we flipped it the tables are turned and we're in a much more powerful position to make change to make really long-lasting sticky change because suddenly we have consumers asking the questions and being, being intrigued. And that's a very strong position to be in. So we can use deliciousness as this tool to engage people in topics, very important, you know, global systemic topics that we need to solve. We need to solve these challenges. We can engage them in these topics in a way that is much more natural and is much more likely to lead to long lasting habit changes and um, broader systemic changes. Additionally, you know, at the minute we, Certainly in the UK, for example, we import foods from all sorts of different places um, around the world and they have certain flavor profiles and we love them and that's great. However, when you look at how some of these foods uh, are produced, they can be produced in very unethical, unsustainable ways. And so when we explore flavor and, and where flavor comes from, how it's made, a particular flavor profile, we could suddenly start to look at, well, how do we create a chocolate, something that tastes exactly like chocolate, but that doesn't contain cacao that's been grown you know many hundreds of miles away um, by very you know some of the world's poorest people so by exploring flavor we can try to think of ways to recreate these flavor profiles that we love and that we enjoy but using more sustainable ethical ways 
What we love about Johnny's work is his interdisciplinary approach to shifting behaviors. And it's really this shifting of our preferences or habits through experiences that Catherine and I also feel really passionate about. And he speaks about deliciousness as being our gateway to that. And I really love the word deliciousness. It's, it's one of these words that I feel like when you hear you say it just like sparks joy. It's just one of those nice words to use. Isn't that delicious? Anyways. It's a, it's a really completely scientific approach that he takes to his work, really. It's the creation of a completely novel way to, I suppose, trick the mind through these flavor profiles into tasting the same thing. And that's really, I think, true creativity at its finest. And I think it's really interesting that Johnny and his team are using this fermentation approach to completely shift flavor. And there's actually so many more things that are fermented than we than we really think. And it's hugely exciting to think about what this future of fermentation science can hold and this discovery to help really create more sustainable change in the way that food is delivered, developed, and enjoyed. And I personally am I'm really looking forward to learning more about that. How does flavor and work I do impact well-being as well as that connection to each other and the environment? That's a great question. Firstly, flavor is very complex. You know, it's not just about the stimuli that, that get triggered in our mouths and our noses and our uh, taste and smell receptors, but it's all to do with, you know, history, um, emotion, context. You know, am I drinking this? glass of wine on holiday in the south of France or am I in, in London in on a winter's day? So flavor can have this very holistic role in our lives. We can, can make us feel very happy. It can recall, you know, the best days of our lives. It can recall um, awful um, memories. I have a friend who, who can't eat aubergine because he was making a dish with aubergines when a, an ex-ex-girlfriend broke up with him. So it can be very powerful. So if we feed flavorsome, nutritious food to people that they love, that they can have build an emotional rapport with then that can be part of a broader more holistic positive lifestyle additionally i think with respect to the environment and connection with each other one of the great problems of contemporary global food systems is that we have become divorced from the food that we eat and how it is how it is grown so we don't really care or perhaps have even an idea of the labor that's gone into growing an avocado that was perhaps grown in Mexico and the journey that it's been on or the sort of life that those avocado growers have, how much money they're paid for their, for their labor. So I think, again, it goes back to this idea of if you can sit a plate of food in, in front of someone and they start asking you questions, okay, that was delicious. Where did the avocado come from? If it's so mind-blowingly flavorsome that they're super intrigued, then suddenly we can open up all these pathways about, you know, the history, the provenance of those ingredients. A lot of what I do, although I, you know, I'm a scientist and I work in food, it's basically storytelling. And if you can tell great stories, and, and this, this is true of the food world, but of lots of other disciplines, if you can tell great stories, then you know, you can enact change and you can get people behind you. And, you know, what we need to do in order to change global food systems, which are broken, which are very messed up, is have lots of people making small changes to their buying, consuming, eating habits. On a personal level, just this, the research that's going into understanding the role that microbes play within within humans or for humans so most notably within the the, the the gut and the effects on maintaining uh, our health warding off diseases etc um, that's you know the next 30 to 50 years of that is going to be mind-blowing I dare say. I really love the story about his friend who can't eat aubergine anymore because it reminds me of an ex 
But also like Charles, Donnie takes a sort of more holistic approach to well-being through flavour and, and multi-sensory storytelling. And I think it is really important to remember holistic approaches to well-being. However, at the end, Johnny notes what I promised we'd come back to and probably the most direct way that he impacts well-being, which is fermentation. Now, the importance of fermentation is huge and it's gaining increasing attention in the West. You'll now regularly see foods such as kefir and kombucha in supermarkets. You know, they're becoming shelf staples. But not so many people know why we should all be necking kombucha every day. And the research really is amazing and something we do love to discuss. Oh, we certainly do. Catherine always likes to bring up her gut bio, mostly just how much money she spends at Planet Organic on kombucha. But we've we've all really had our experiences with different gastro staff, no doubt. And you've heard about the positive positive impact of our healthy microbiome but but what is it exactly and why is it actually important to our well-being it's brilliant and I do love to chat about my microbiome and I do love the shelves of planet organic (laughs) (laughs) the microbiome is the bacteria that lives naturally in our gut and there's millions of them and they're there from birth and they have a huge relationship with us there's something called the gut brain access There's something called the gut-brain axis, and that really is a two-way street from our gut to our brain. And this is a relatively new finding. We thought that, that it wasn't possible for things in our gut to sort of literally go up the nervous system to the brain. But there are chemicals and uh, molecules that are being made in the gut by the bacteria there that directly impact the workings of our brain and so our mood and behaviour. It also is really important to our immunity and metabolism. There's certain species of gut microbes that can protect the gut wall, helping it to maintain its mucous membrane, and that stops the contents literally spilling into the bloodstream. Mm. Without that barrier, you get what's called a leaky gut, which can trigger lots of things in inflammatory diseases and proteins that increase blood flow around sites of infections. And that's how really the microbes inside our guts help regulate the body's immune response. Right, exactly. And I mean, the the healthy gut is really the right balance of alkalinity and acidity in your gut. But what can you ingest to create these conditions in your gut? A study had people from all different cultural backgrounds actually add a few extra servings of fermented foods each day. So things like sauerkraut, my personal favorite, kimchi, fermented cottage cheese even. And then they kept ramping that up over the weeks and they studied them over time and then they had them switch back to their original diets without having these fermented foods in them. And they found that there were loads of positive impacts on their gut and markers of inflammation and immune system function overall in this long term more than the people who didn't do that but what I actually really love about the microbiome which is kind of sorry Catherine moving away from the gut back to the (laughs) nose I'll give you this time is did you know that we actually have a microbiome in our nose so I actually didn't know that till this exact moment in time isn't that crazy and so going back to nasal breathing which we talked about a few episodes earlier in our breath episode so if you breathe through your nose it actually improves your nasal microbiome and it allows you to better fight off infections and because your nose has these microbiome it's much better to breathe through your nose than to breathe through your mouth because it means that when you breathe through your nose you can actually fight off infection more so so this winter focus on nasal breathing not to just help your respiration and your nervous system but also to help your immune system response so this winter 
just think about closing your mouth and breathing through your nose and you are going to kind of have this really increased immune response and you can think about all the healthy microbiome in your nose and leads to your gut health. Absolutely. You know, and as Robin said, it's, it's important for our immunity, but it's really important for our mental health as well. You know, we found now that that your gut microbiome and possibly your nose microbiome as well is producing neurochemicals uh, that, that can enhance and, and boost your mental health. Some lot of studies with mice right now are being given unbalanced biomes and they suddenly show greater fluctuations in hormones, um, things that are related to stress levels. You know, it's suggested that the gut bacteria of healthy mice are actually shaping the hormonal profile. Gut microbes also influence how we digest and metabolize. They're the precursor of important neurotransmitters like serotonin and dopamine. Our gut flora, you know, like I said, has this direct line of communication to the brain through the vagus nerve. Another great favourite of, of the kind of studios, which you'll hear come up in other episodes. Again and again and <laughs> again and again. <laughs> but it is amazing how, you know, the microbes in our intestine release chemical messengers that actually alter the signalling of the vagus nerve and as a consequence, the brain's activity. So get out there and get necking kombucha like me. But maybe don't don't spend all your money in plant organic. You could try to make your own. Exactly that. <laughs> oh, don't we know that we can make kombucha at home? All you need to do is find a friend who has a scoby, uh, which is the starter that you need to make your uh, kombucha tea and just some tea and a jar. I've been making kombucha for, for many years, actually. And, you know, kombucha is actually super simple, but you do need to make sure you do do it properly. One of the most important things is, is making sure the top of your jar of kombucha is covered in a cheesecloth. Do make sure that the cheesecloth has, you know, the uh, quite fine strain of cheesecloth and that the elastic band that you use to go around the outer ring is quite tight. It does breed flies really easily if you don't make sure it's covered enough. Making kombucha over the winter is a great month to start. You can play with the flavors yourself and you can play with kind of your own experience of the food and you don't need to spend four pounds a bottle on your kombucha. <laughs> you don't. And of course, the most amazing thing about these things is they, they're not modern practices. They're really ancient practices, aren't they? Yeah, exactly. And now the science behind these traditional practices are catching up once again. And these fermented foods and these fermented ways of cooking have really been around for ancient centuries. You know, they stay and they keep for a really long time and they don't go off. So they've been a really good way of preserving food as well. And now we're really seeing that, again, we're backing up what these ancient practices have known for, for quite some time about how good it is for us. They really have. And I think that was... So the most poignant bit of the conversation with, with Johnny was talking about actually underneath all of this and all his work and even all the fun is something very, very human, that coming together around food to celebrate not just flavour, but also that human connection. And he talked about how that really does sit at the centre of his work and also the sort of exciting places he sees it. I've been very lucky. My This job, if you can call it that, when I go through uh, security at airports, often I, I carry a lot of weird things, you know, brown paste and liquids and vacuum bags and maybe some kind of weird instruments. So I get stopped a lot and I, when I tell people what I do, they often don't, don't think it's a real job. But if, if, you, if you can call it a 
job. This job I have, incredibly, I've been incredibly lucky in that I've traveled all around the world and eaten at some of the, you know, very fancy places. But the great unifying thing I think about working in food and drink is just the people. And again, the stories, you know, working with people who dedicate their lives to growing, producing a particular thing and hearing their stories, why these people end up dedicating their lives to this thing. For me, I think that it's that human element um, which underpins all of the, you know, all of the food we eat, which is probably most most fascinating. And the, the most thrilling moments are, you know, sitting on a sort of giant rock meteorite thing in the middle of a coffee plantation in Brazil, drinking coffee out of a, a thermos flask with this this guy, you know, telling this uh, this story about how he ended up being a coffee farmer, or being in these sort of weird, funny little places in in you know nooks and crannies of the world where I where I just think what you know what a privilege it is to be here and share this moment. So for me, those are the the most exciting moments. Those yeah ephemeral times where you you think, wow, this has probably never happened before. This particular group of people having this particular conversation over this in a particular dish or drink. And then in terms of what I see happening on the horizon, I think th this re, you know, re-overlapping, let's say, of food and medicine is fascinating. Um, and then also I think, you know, biotech, obviously you can knock um, large companies and some of the problems within global food systems are definitely due to very large uh, companies, but the sort of forefront of biotechnology and how we're sort of harnessing the power of microbes is also very, very fascinating. And again, will arguably change the world in the next 30 to 50 years. And I'll just finish by saying that, you know, I am a scientist, I'm interested in these kind of cutting edge things, but for me, there is nothing better and food should should totally be about, um, you know, heart and soul and cooking with love and having a group of people sat around a table eating something often quite simple, um, but that's been been made with care and love and attention and no amount of biotech will, will ever change that, I don't think. It's a really wonderful sentiment. And I think that as we all kind of gather around the table with friends and family and very various festive occasions it's just really important to you know really reflect on taste flavor connection food and how multiple that really is and how they're all a really multi-sensory experience no matter who you with or where you are and whether you're eating the latest gastronomic creation or whether you're eating something incredibly traditional and rather ancient just know that there is so much beyond what your kind of conscious perception of this experience is that's influencing your experience of it. And I think that's a really beautiful thing. And so maybe you want to play with some of your perceptions at your festive meal if you want to, you know, dye a certain drink or something a different color and throw people off. Or maybe you just want to keep it traditional. But maybe there's some nuggets in here to share with your friends and family over the season, yeah? Absolutely. I think that sentiment really is, is the perfect one to wrap on, especially at this sort of festive period, because we can do so much with science, but at its core, science should always be expansive and not reductive and always, always human first. And so the more we find out about flavour and food, the more we can enhance our experience of the world and enjoy it with other people. You know, the most important element of all of this, as Johnny says, is that sitting around the table with people we care about, sharing food, sharing stories, sharing company. And so I hope that this festive season, you were all surrounded by incredible flavours, yes, but also friends, loved ones, because that is probably actually the thing with the most powerful impact on our well-being in all of this, that connection. <laughs>